You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Auzu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah the most gracious, the merciful. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace be upon you all and welcome back to another Drive Time show where we begin today in reflecting on the year that was 2022 it was a lovely year we are reaching the end on we uh, today is the 27th december myself saad ahmed and my co-host zakaria sheikh assalamu alaikum zakaria how are you wa alaikum assalam peace be upon you too um alhamdulillah i'm doing well alhamdulillah how are you alhamdulillah not bad so we be you know today we were reflecting upon the month of september yep. it was a sad month for the um uk as you all know that her majesty the queen passed away in september mm-hmm. unfortunately and we know uh, a there was a couple of prime minister changes happened yeah in the month of september mm-hmm. so on the 6th of september we saw liz truss um, being appointed as the prime minister of the united kingdom after winning the july september campaign 2022 and on, on the 8th of september Um, Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II died at Bowmore Castle in Scotland at the age of 96 and the next day Charles III was officially proclaimed as the king of the United Kingdom and of the Commonwealth realms mm-hmm. and on the September 14th uh, up till the 19 the body of Queen Elizabeth II lied in state at Westminster Hall where hundreds of thousands of people from around Britain and the world gathered to pay their respects to the late monarch on the se- uh, 19th of September the state funeral of Elizabeth II was held in Westminster Abbey in London the funeral was the most watched television event in the hi- world history can you imagine wow. uh everyone every single person every single i think most of the Indeed. countries they were actually Even myself, in I was watching that. over the tv yeah yeah um and uh, like you said uh, on the 23rd of september 2022 the chancellor kwasi kwateng delivered an emergency mini budget in which he announced the biggest tax cuts in the UK since 1972 the five, uh, the 45% top rate of income tax paid by only the highest earners in England Wales and Northern Ireland would be scrapped while the basic rate in England Wales and Northern Ireland to be reduced from 20% to 19% I mean uh, what a year it was isn't it I mean Indeed. so many things uh, that happened and uh, like you said um the sad event that um uh, took place for the UK was the death of um um her majesty the queen, queen. Her, her majesty the queen elizabeth the second um and that uh, of course was a shock for the whole world but Indeed. she was of course you know getting old as well and as muslims we believe that 
you know, God has created us, but then our return is for certain. So uh, we always say, Inna lillahi wa inna ilahi rajiun, when someone passes away, that surely we belong to God Almighty and surely we return to God Almighty mm-hmm. as well, the creator of of the mankind. So a statement of the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community um, upon the demise of Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand, has said, the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II is a truly great loss for the United Kingdom and Commonwealth. Ahmadi Muslims will remain forever grateful for the way Her Majesty served her people with immense dignity, grace and unwavering dedication throughout her long reign. On behalf of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, I wish to express our most sincere condolences to His Majesty King Charles III, the members of the royal family and to the nation. May God Almighty grant them all the patience and strength to deal with this tremendous loss. Amen. Um, yeah, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community too was saddened by her passing, of course. But we um, spend this show looking at her extraordinary life and the reign and focused on the good things that she achieved, of course. And Indeed. despite her role as a constitutional monarch, uh, she was nonetheless seen by many as a uh, true leader. And in Islam, leadership is rooted in believing and willing uh, for submission to the Creator. And in the Holy Quran, we find that God Almighty said that, and, and, and we made them leaders who guide people by our command, and we sent revelation to them, enjoining the doing of good works and the observing of prayer and the giving of alms, and they were worshippers of us alone. Um, the, Of course, the legacy continues, and, and, and um, Queen Elizabeth II carried on the legacy of the Queen Express Victoria, uh, Empress uh, Victoria, who you know brought religious freedom to India back in the days, uh, which may... Um, of its inhabitants had not uh, experienced of many centuries. Mm-hmm. And this benevolence had earned her a huge deal of praise from Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmadi, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the promised Messiah, who had been sent by Allah Almighty to rejuvenate, uh, rejuvenate not only Islam, mm-hmm. but all other religions of the world. You know, as you know, Islam came for the whole mankind. Indeed in order to unite all the religions and Islam has, you know, the teachings of all the religions. Indeed. So he, by the advent of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Muhammad, peace be upon him, of course, he brought back the true teachings of God Almighty um, as as it was promised in major books that a Messiah will come. Now, under the rule of such a government and such a monarch, he was free to speak, write, and publicize his message through every medium available. And more than a century later, the fifth successor of Hazrat Ahmed, السلام, peace be upon him, the current caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizam Surur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, 
was to echo the same words of gratitude to the Queen Elizabeth II. And of course, this reign continued and, and, and the works that they had done and Queen Victoria had done back in the days, which is given the freedom of, of religion, which is the most dear thing for a religious person. If yes. they cannot express their religion, then what is left in the world, isn't it? So mm-hmm. and she gave this this right to uh, to express and to follow uh, to and, uh, and 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 to practice the religion of of Islam back in the days, of course. And the promised Messiah, you know, wrote extensive uh, to express his gratitude for the Queen Victoria and was. Uh, and which which can be summarized in his own words, and he also wrote a a a, a very interesting book um, for thanking and 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 inviting Her Majesty uh, to Islam, right? Mm-hmm. And she wrote, uh, Promise Messiah wrote a book which is called A Gift for the Queen. And in this book, the Promise Messiah Islam states uh, in regards to her that. A great portion of the beneficence of the Empress of India is that during her reign, every person has gained a large opportunity for spiritual advancement. And this happened because of the rights that she gave, uh, you know, in order to practice freely mm. the, uh, the everyone, everyone owns religion, of course. Indeed, you know, when... The Queen Victoria passed away in January 1901. The Ahmadiyya Press paid tribute to her by publishing her biography and by reminding the readers of how benevolent her reign had been. Mm-hmm. A memorial service was arranged at the residence of Hazrat Nawab Muhammad Ali Khan Sahib on Friday, 25th January in Malir Kotla. So it's a, it's a place... Mm-hmm. where the great service of the empress were remembered and prayers were offered for her. You know, all that was being echoed in the same way which um, His Holiness has mentioned yeah. and wrote regarding Her Majesty Queen um, mm-hmm. Elizabeth II. Yeah. You know, and also, as we know, um, upon um, when her, um, Queen Elizabeth II reached her Platinum Jubilee um, earlier this year, uh, because it, and it became one of the longest-running um, re- regime monarch in the Brit- British history. Her reign was filled with many achievements that were both personal successes and contributed to the nation as a whole. As we all know that the Queen was born on 1926 and, and she was the daughter of King George V's second son, and therefore was not accepted, um, expected to ascend to the throne. However, you know, in 1936, um, her uncle, King Edward VIII, chose to abdicate his uh, throne in order to marry the American divorcee and led to her suddenly being determined to be the heir of the crown after her father. So, uh, on her 21st birthday speech, which was broadcasted from South Africa in 1947, she proclaimed, and she said, the, Her Majesty the Queen, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to, to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. Indeed, it was a long serving life for mm-hmm. the people, and she lived by her words. And when she said those words in South Africa, in 1947 uh, at her 21st birthday 
So as we know, when her father passed away suddenly in his 50s, um, leading a young, uh, inexperienced Elizabeth, the same age as me, mm-hmm. age of 25 years old, becoming um, the queen of a monarch yeah. at the age of 25. And I, even myself, I can't believe being at that same age right now, being, um, uh, what's it called, having control over such a vast um, country yeah. suddenly at the age of 25. even though I'm still inexperienced I still have a lot to learn yeah. and Her Majesty the Queen has um, dealt so beautifully and I don't remember even my parents' generation who were born in, in the na- 1960s they don't remember anyone before her everyone just knew Queen Elizabeth mostly yeah she's she been uh, nearly 100 years isn't it yeah 96 um, years old 96 years old uh, I mean back in the days as well the humans had the capability to lead a massive group of people from a very young age as well. Indeed. Um, but when you look at the generations now, it's a bit more uh, difficult to say because we're more dependent on a lot of things. <laughs> so I think uh, we also um, you know, discussed this topic with uh, Professor Frank Mort, uh, a professor of cultural histories from the University of Manchester. Um, um, shall we listen to the audio now? Yes, of course. Yeah. Frank Mort from the University of Manchester. And Professor, I wanted to ask you first of all, what do you think will be Her Majesty the Queen's legacy? I think it will be a mixture of tradition and innovation. And that those things are very closely intertwined and have been throughout Queen Elizabeth II's reign. Let me explain a little bit what I mean. Uh, actually, the reign has seen some amazing changes Uh, in terms of the way Britain was and the Commonwealth was and the world was in 1952, 53, and it is today. Talk about winds of change, yeah. which is the phrase that Harold Macmillan coined in the 1950s. Um, and the Queen as well, was very skillful at balancing those changes alongside a commitment to the more traditional forms of the monarchy, the pomp, the ceremony, yeah, the yeah. respect, the admiration. So I think that is a, her legacy uh, in large part. Mm. The, um, as the longest serving monarch, um, it, you mentioned all the changes. How do you think mm. monarchy has changed during her reign? Well, I think it has become more informal. It mm. has become more accessible. It's become more populist, you might say. But those changes have been going on for some time and throughout the 20th century. So you could say that her grandfather, King George V, started much of that in the early 20th century, recognizing the importance of mass society. So King George goes to the cup final for the first time in 1914. He does the Christmas broadcasts in the late 20s and 1930s. The Queen... Um, Uh, admits the cameras into Buckingham Palace mm. and for the coronation. Um, she goes walkabout in the early 1970s in New Zealand. And I think she had very, very finely tuned antennae in terms of public opinion in this country. Would you say that she had the pulse of the nation? Oh, could you repeat, please? Would, would you say that she had the pulse of the nation? 
the, the what of the nation. The pulse. The, that she knew exactly what people wanted. She, yes, she, the pulse, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. I think, I think generally she did. Um, you could say that she represented a certain type of um, uh, Middle England in some ways, but she was very attuned to um, countries within the Commonwealth. You might say that the, the, the only time that she misjudged, and it was for a short period, hmm. was after Diana's death. Hmm. Um, but she quickly recognised the public feeling and the emotion that Diana and her death had produced. And so she came down to Buckingham Palace from Balmoral and we saw her in the streets with the crowds looking at the flowers and so forth. Would you say that she's left monarchy in a stronger position? Undoubtedly, I would say, um, at the moment. Um, if you look at opinion polls mm. about her popularity across the 70 years, she never fell below majority support. There were some rumblings in the 1960s mm. um, when she was slightly out of tune with, if you like, uh, some of the changes in popular culture. But she did... She didn't. She rode those changes quite effectively, and I think over the last 20 years, since the Golden Jubilee, uh, her popularity has been very secure. Yeah. Uh, do you think largely her popularity has been reasonably very good, and it's increased because of of her travels? I mean, she was someone who visited many countries during her reign, especially in the Commonwealth. I mean, how do you think mm. that had an impact on the world view of Queen Elizabeth II? Um, I mean, Queen Elizabeth II was in the spotlight of the world's media from at least the young age of 10, mm. when she became her father's heiress presumptive in 1936, yeah. after the abdication, and her picture travelled across the world. And she did her first foreign tour with her parents and sister as Princess Elizabeth to South Africa in 1947. She undertook innumerable state visits um, throughout her reign. But as you rightly say, her enduring passion uh, was for the Commonwealth. Yeah. Now, there has been recent criticism of the Commonwealth, particularly from Caribbean and African countries yeah. where she remained head of state, as does the new king, you might say that one of the most pressing issues in the new king's entree is precisely how to negotiate the Commonwealth, yeah. maybe in a different form. Um, what is his relationship going to be? It looks pretty clear he is, as King Charles, going to be head of the Commonwealth, yeah. what to do about some of those criticisms about imperialism and racism, which have been picked up recently. And talking about King Charles, we have always known that he's very open and voices his opinion. And he was way ahead of the curve when it came to climate change and the impacts on the environment. Do you think, as King Charles, he will be able to hold back and not get involved in those conversations? I think with King Charles III, we will say, see a different style of sovereign, to be mm. sure. I mean, he is of a different generation. 
Um, he's a post. He's of the post-war generation. He's touched by many of what we call as historians the new social movements of the 1960s and 1970s, particularly environmentalism and the urban environment. So I think he may um, continue in perhaps a quieter way with some of his concerns. I don't think there will be a great change, however, in the in the substance of monarchy. Yeah. And I think one of the Queen's um, comments when she ascended the throne in 1952 was often, what would my father have done? And I can imagine uh, King Charles repeating that to yeah. his staff uh, over the next few months as he negotiates the new role. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And... And, yeah, and, and I think that's a really valid point there. I mean, just before I let you go, Professor, yes. uh, how, how would you remember the Queen? Uh, well, I've got particular personal memories because I, what, what I was called what was a coronation baby. I was born five days before uh, the Queen was crowned in June 1953, yeah. and all of the children in the maternity ward, uh, my mother tells me, were given a mug, a silver spoon, uh, a piece of uh, Union Jack ribbon, mm. and some uh, coins. So that kind of stayed with me, um, if you like, um, across my younger life. I would say whether you're a royalist or a republican, a radical or conservative, I think there is a great emotional void that's opened up for us all, which will be difficult to fill. Yeah, I, I understand that, and I think your comments there will will be very similar to the hundreds and thousands, if not millions, of people around the world mm. trying to fill a void. But you know, let, let, let's see how how it all pans out. But hopefully, we will be able to do some justice to this conversation. And thanks for your input, Professor. Really appreciate your time. And and it's a lovely memory that your mum has relayed to you, <laughs> and it's great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Indeed, what a beautiful way of remembering Her Majesty the Queen. And well said by Frank Mort about how he remembered the Her Majesty, Her Majesty the Queen, Elizabeth II, as he was one of those early boomers um, when um, she was um, when she became queen she, uh, he was born a couple of days before that and he was given a silver spoon mug some coins and that's how he remembers her and he has quite a what a, a beautiful way he said and he and, and the remembrance he had for her majesty the queen now swiftly moving on to our second topic of today US a mm -hmm. Um, there was civil war and question mark for our war. listeners. Yes. So, Zakaria, if you can let us know about what civil war in USA means. Yes, uh, a newly released, uh, released poll by The Economist and the YouGov has found that a significant number of Americans believe the United States will be embroiled in a civil war within the next 10 years wow. as political division continue to strain the country's civil bonds. I mean... It's crazy, <laughs> um, and and it's it's uh, his holiness also spoke about this that you know there is a possible of civil war the way governments are working yes. at the moment, and the Holy Quran, in regards to this, uh, God Almighty says that O ye who believe, be strict in observing justice, 
and be witnesses for Allah even though it be against yourself or against parents and kindred whether he be rich or poor Allah is more regardful of them both than you are therefore follow not low desires so that you may be able to act equitably and if you conceal the truth or evade it then remember that Allah is well aware of what you do I mean in the United States as president uh, elect Joe Biden's victories was to be formally confirmed by the Congress a mm-hmm. routine procedure thousands of hardline pro Trump supporters gathered in the Washington uh, Washington DC to protest and ultimately and unfortunately uh, not the entire uh, entirety surprisingly this protest turned violent as crowds of people stormed the mm-hmm. Capitol building and entered the offices and the halls and the chamber of government after hours of violence president trump finally addressed the instigators by first repeating his allegations about election fraud and then vaguely asking his supporters to go home and in light of these events you know it would seem that the the recent letter by his holiness as mr masoor ahmed the fifth caliph of the ahmadi muslim community he wrote to president trump that um you know the, the thing that he wrote it, it has been fallen on a deaf ears and highlighting the need for absolute justice and transparency his holiness may Allah be his helper wrote in a letter to the president that he, he wrote that it is imperative that the leaders of the nation sets an example for the rest of society for the sake of peace and harmony of any nation it is prerequisite that the government local authorities and law enforcement agencies treat all their citizens equally irrespective of their skin the color the ethnicity and in this regard the expectation of absolute justice and non-discrimination from the leader of the country such as the united states especially high mm-hmm. i mean uh, yes. th- th- these words are very powerful Indeed. and as you even mentioned when we were talking about um the civil war hmm. um his holiness four years back mentioned this regard and and it was to a renowned canadian journalist called mm-hmm. peter mansbridge mm-hmm. and while talking about diverse politics and the threat they pose to peace and stability understandably tensions are high in the united states right now where um, his holiness is mentioning with the threat of more violence hanging in the air that the presidential inauguration ceremony will take place on January 20th and no clear direction of any leaders no one can predict what will unfold over the next few days and over and over again his holiness may Allah be pleased with him may Allah strengthen his hand has reminded world leaders on their responsibility towards justice and peace he spoke constantly about the need for leaders to be truthful mm-hmm. compassionate and motivated not by greed or ambition but by a desire for establishing peace around the world it remains to be seen if the leaders of the united states will heed the words of his holiness mela strengthen his hand and put aside their personal interests and differences for the sake of mutual peace and ensure a peaceful transition of power so regarding this we have robert 
Young Pelton, who is an author and filmmaker, talking regarding the U.S. Civil War and the happiness at work. Today, Robert Young Pelton is an author and a filmmaker, and Robert is with us on the line. We're going to talk to him about this topic and ask him a few questions. Robert, good afternoon, PC Ponyan. Welcome to the Draft Time Show. Uh, thank you for having me. Good to have you. Thank you so much for your time, first of all. Um, Robert, author and filmmaker, tell, tell us about yourself and, and, and you know the work that you do. I mean, it's quite self-explanatory, but um, just for the benefit of our listeners, what exactly, what kind of films, what kind of you know, books have you written and why? What's the interest? Uh, I'm probably most famous for a thousand-page book called The World's Most Dangerous Places, which is a guide to... Uh, the war zones in the world and how to survive them. And in my filmmaking, uh, you know, I'm not very creative, so my TV series or series of documentaries was called The World's Most Dangerous Places. And what I've been doing for the last, um, I want to say 20 years, is going directly inside uh, conflicts and uh, meeting with rebel groups, jihadi groups, military groups, uh, insurgents, and understanding what their motivations are, what really is going on on the ground, and then uh, simply coming back and explaining to people. So I, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on the relative dangers of the world. So uh, that's my expertise, and that's what my topics are. Mm-hmm. Robert, if I can take a cue from your introduction, do you think U.S. is becoming one of the most dangerous places in the world? <laughs> so, you know, when I write my book, we always make fun of Afghanistan and Yemen and Somalia, and we say, oh, my God, these places are so terrible because uh, everybody's got a gun. Uh, but in reality, uh, America is a dangerous place, not necessarily because of the percentages of homicides, uh, but the you know, pervasiveness of violent thought and action. And And, you know, this is something that, I go to Afghanistan a lot, and I've been there going since the mid-'90s. Um, you know, people that own guns and use guns in these places understand the seriousness of violent threats and, and use of violence. In America, we have this sort of projecting of what they call 2A, which is the Second Amendment, uh, the right to uh, own firearms. And there's a lot of posturing politically about the potential use of weapons. We even have... Uh, one politician, I think yesterday or the day before, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said she answers her door with a, an, an AR-15, which is almost laughable when you think about it. But then again, she was swatted twice, which is a very, you know, gunned up group of police people responding to emergencies. So there is that potential for violence here. So where do you think the U.S. is headed, Robert? Well, we have a very serious problem, and, uh, you know, I was trained by special forces. I'm not in the military, but I went through some exercises to understand how Green Berets are trained. And one of the exercises they do is called Robin Sage, and it's essentially taking a group of Green Berets and teaching them how to overthrow a country. And most people don't realize that conflict is in stages. You know, it's not just war. Hmm. We have a problem in that people are inciting division. And this is through our social media, through political speeches, through just continuous bombardment of negative images that people can argue about. This can be accelerated, as we saw on January 6th, into violence, because this is a science. It's it's not random. So, yes, we do have a problem. And 
I think we have some extraordinary poll numbers, you know, in which 40% think that there might be a civil war, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, this, again, I think is posturing because war is a very complex business. Mm. We had a period in the 60s, late 60s, in which you saw riots in the streets, you know, between minorities, students, things like that. We don't actually have that now. So, I mean, yes, there's a danger, but no, it's not that extreme. So, so you would you would say that the 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 survey results don't have a lot of legs. Well, let's go back to science. You know, Arab Spring is a good example of mm. violence that overthrows. Maybe not violence, but you know, street demonstrations that overthrows the government. We have the opposite problem. We have more old people than young people. So you know, mm. even though you hear a lot of talk. Most people have homes, they have mortgages, they have cars, they have family. I mean, we're not about to burn down the country. Whereas if people are impoverished and they're angry and they're young and they see no future, they will come out and, and demonstrate en masse and they will use violence if needed. You know, we're sort of seeing that in Russia more than America. Right. So uh, how dangerous do you think is the is the political rhetoric at the moment? Uh, and, and where do you think that that's going to lead uh, American American society, the schism that is there between the deep schism between the Republicans and the Democrats and the supporters? Well, that's, that's a very good question because, you know, I spent some time with Al-Qaeda and the Chechen rebels and a number of people who incite people to violence because of injustice. Mm. And I am seeing the same patterns in the rhetoric here, where they combine religion, they combine social injustice, uh, they, they fabricate events that make people feel outraged, and they try to manipulate their feelings. And this is a very dangerous uh, combination when it's done by legitimate elected officials. And, and you know, as we saw with Donald Trump, you actually saw a very nuanced buildup to January 6th. It wasn't just Donald Trump saying, you know, go to the Capitol. Hmm. It was a series of inflammatory talkers who excited a base using social media, very, very Arab Spring, hmm. and then proceeded to the capital and, and performed violent acts. So do you think this this rhetoric is going to reduce uh, in, in, in months and years to come? No, <laughs> no, because people are using low-level forms of conflict. You know, outside agents try to destabilize and weaken America. You know, you, you've seen all the research on Russia being involved in mm. social media, not just here, but all around the world. You've seen the insertion of what they call little green men and false flag events. It, it's a very volatile area that isn't an army marching on a country. So it's very hard to respond to nonviolent uh, incendiary acts. What we have to do is somewhat like uh, President Biden is doing, is call their bluff. You know, if somebody says, we're going to go there and burn this down and we've got a million people, you find out very quickly that it's usually about 20 or 30 people and it's a very carefully constructed campaign. So this is the key is to throw cold water, uh, you know, like Dr. Zawahiri, right, would sit in some remote place in Pakistan and do these long, boring lectures on why, you know, people must rise up. And then you find out he's just a, an old man living in a remote area. Mm. And this is what we have over here with Donald Trump. We, we have somebody talking as if something's going to happen, but in actual fact, he's losing his support base. 
Um, you met, Robert, you mentioned um, President Biden. After the four years of Trump, um, people were talking when President Biden was elected. They were talking about healing the country. They were talking about um, kind of rehabilitation from what has happened in the last four years. In your opinion, did that happen or are you, is, is President Biden on the right track, on the right way? Is he, is he able to do that? No. This reconciliation or moderation of feelings has to come from the right. Hmm. You know, it, it's not going to come from the left because people are polarized. And if you go out into the rural parts of America and you start asking them what they think, what television channels they watch, they're, they're in their own ecosystem. They're right. very happy in their right wing bubble. It is the right wing that has to say, wait, we're losing traction because our leader, our ideological uh, subset is shrinking in size and therefore we're losing power. So the, the right has to undermine its belief in this sad sort of ideological quest for violence that Trump keeps promoting. Do you see that happening? Ever? I, I do, I do. Um, really? Okay. You know, I do. And, but I, that's not a good thing. So what, what I see is, you know, Donald Trump's a TV actor that was very famous on trash TV as a, as a famous guy, you know, teaching people how to run a business. Uh, we're now moving towards people like Ron DeSantis, who has a Yale and a Harvard degree, who's using the same tactics, but is less inflammatory, but far more intelligent about how he manipulates the media and the right. So Yes, we're moving away from sort of the clown circus, Las Vegas view of uh, conflict, and we're moving towards a darker, more insidious type of conflict. So what do you think then is, is playing? You certainly don't think that, you know, this the civil war scenario is likely uh, or even a semblance of something like that is likely in the next 10 years. What do you think is playing into the minds of these 40% or 60%, depending on the number you're looking at, are thinking? Well, I think they're angry. I mean, we have a large dispossessed group of older, middle and lower class white males in America. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not young, angry kids. And they feel that somehow the American dream has been taken from them. And you see racist overtones. You see even sort of nationalist, you know, white power overtones in there. And this is the core that they're drumming up. This is the people they prey on on Facebook and other social media and even TV. Those people actually can be rehabilitated. There was a, a test where they took people who watched Fox News every day and made them watch CNN, and slowly their ideas changed. So it's, we are very much a media-driven country. You know, our ideology does not come from books. It comes from TV and, mm. and Facebook. So I think that's where we have to focus. We have to say, you know, Arab Spring started because the Internet was more powerful than the armies of dictators. And, and we have to think the same way here, because we are being Arab Springed, if I could make up a word. Mm. So... You know, there is, you're saying there's anger, um, there is frustration, and then there is obviously the prevalence of guns across the country. So it doesn't sound a very optimistic scenario to me. No, I don't know if you've been in any wars, but you have to understand that these people own small uh, rifles and handguns. There, there, huh. There's no mortars or howitzers in people's basements. You know, when I'm in Afghanistan, people have Katusha launchers, which they rent out. 
So I, I wouldn't take what people call guns here as anything leading to any sort of mass mobilization of an army. Uh, we had a very famous movie here called Red Dawn in which, you know, a bunch of college kids uh-huh. defeated the Cubans or Russians or something like that. Uh-huh. That's a completely fictitious scenario. Uh-huh. You know, if you look at our police, uh-huh. they're much more weaponized than the civilians are. Robert, if I could just, um, you know, I, I certainly don't want to uh, be pessimistic about the whole thing, and I and I hope and pray that you're right. And I'm, you know, the, the question, the, my line of questioning is wrong, but but just to sort of build on the argument that you were making, and, and you talked about Afghanistan earlier. Uh, well, uh, what they had was uh, uh, was not even a bunch of AK-47s. All of that came later. So there, there. Well, that was done with money. Exactly. So, no. so what I'm trying to say is, and and you look at many other conflicts. You look at Syria. Um, you 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 look at Ukraine at the moment. Uh, you, you know, sophisticated weaponry is coming from uh, from outside after the conflict has started. So, uh, you know, weapons can can come in. Is what I'm saying. Yes, you, that's a very intelligent assessment. And <laughs> if you were to find no, I mean, you're you're talking about something that could happen in the U.S. Yeah. if someone was to funnel expertise, weaponry, you know, air support. Um, I, I, if, I can, if I can say that on live radio, you, you know, uh, probably to an extent, uh, something happening to America akin to what America has been doing in, in some countries. And, and there's no, lack, there's no, there's no lack of people who would probably want to harm America. <laughs> yeah, if I can exactly. Say so yeah. there's no shortage of enemies. Let's take, it, let's take it back to what I said earlier. You know, yeah. I spend a lot of time with people who are trained to overthrow governments. That's mm. all they do, right? Yeah. They, they parachute behind enemy lines. They teach farm kids how to shoot weapons. They call in airstrikes. They monitor this situation very closely. As a matter of fact, one of the biggest fears that the Pentagon had was that those exact same people would get involved in destabilizing the government. And we haven't seen that. You know, the funny the funny paradigm is that we have people who say they're patriots but want to overthrow the government it's Mm. kind of a weird you know contrast but the threat is real i mean the threat of a flashpoint and you know most civil wars start with a singular violent event that outrages people and you know they begin shooting or whatever uh if you look at the five or seven stages of conflict Mm. you know we're at about number two where we have clearly defined groups that dislike each other we haven't actually reached the violence part, except let's just say January 6th was the first indication that there was an organized attempt to use violence to overthrow the government. Robert, such a pleasure to speak to you. Hmm. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Uh, very enlightening discussion. Uh, excellent. Thank you once again. Thank you for having me. This was Robert Young Pilton enlightening us with his wisdom regarding um, civil war in the United States. And moving on to our third show for today, organ donation. So as we all know, organ donation um, is giving an organ to help someone who needs a transplant. According to the NHS, 6,613 people are waiting for a transplant in the UK. and. 1,489 people have received a transplant since April 2022. The Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, When the human being dies, his deeds 
and except for three ongoing charity beneficial knowledge or a righteous child who prays for him this saying of the holy prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him reveals that ongoing charity benefits the person even after their death and organ donation is a type of an ongoing charity for as long as the person who receives donations benefits from the transplant the donor will continuously get good deeds yeah uh, it's 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 um it, it's it's a ongoing uh, the holy prophet peace and blessings Allah be upon him said that this ongoing charity could be done with, with so many other things and and this is one of it Indeed. that if of course this um this organ will not be used and when this is been donated to someone who actually needs and is fighting uh with their life that is a ongoing donation even if the person has died and what Islam says about this, on, and, and some people might be worried about how organ donation sits with their religion um, or their beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, if you look at major religions in the UK, you know, they have a support for organ donation in principle. I mean, overall religion is in support of that. And specifically in Islam, organ donation is not only permissible, but also greatly encouraged. Mm-hmm. Um and the, the the essence of Islam is to serve mankind, and therefore, any act of beneficence is always promoted in in Islam. The key source of guidance is the Holy Quran, um, and and uh, which addresses um, in in chapter three, verse number hundred and eleven, where God Almighty says, "You are the best people created for the good of mankind." I mean. You're the best people created. Muslims, they have given the life code of, of, of how to live in this world through the Holy Quran. And we understand why we, you know, why this is important, why we should care for others and why we should donate our, um, uh, our, uh, our um, you know, why we organs. should o- uh, o- donate our organs, of mm-hmm. course. And um, this verse specifically, you know, reveals that Muslims are expected to serve their fellow human beings and contribute in any way possible towards the betterment of all people throughout their lives uh, by donating organs. And one serves to decrease human suffering and save lives. And this is the main reason why Islam, you know, doesn't prohibit. In fact, it encourages humans to do this and this upholds islamic values of doing goodness to others however there are two points to keep in mind Mm -hmm. the first one is that um and and this is um discussed in a meeting with the ahmadiyya muslim women's association sorry uh women's student association and the head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, stated that if you are donating organs to save someone's life, then it is not prohibited in, in Islam. That is quite ethnical, right? Only care should be taken that one's pers- uh, uh, that the person's face is not mutilated. It should be preserved. So, uh, you know, anything that has to do with, with inside the body is uh, is is permissible but anything that you know you can't take out anything from the face of course the second thing which we should keep in mind is that 
if the living donor runs in danger of losing uh, his or her life in the donation process, then it is not permissible. Islam does not permit the sacrifice of one's life for another, as that is, you know, of course, considered as uh, equal to suicide. So suicide mm. or killing yourself for uh, protecting someone else is not uh, is not permissible. But in order to go and save that person, mm -hmm. and even if you have to, you know, in order to protect, fight against that person who's, let's say, killing someone or trying to kill, that is a right of a fellow human being, but you're not allowed to kill yourself, you can say. Okay. Mm. So, uh, as we all know, uh, there is a audio of, of Sadia Karim, who is a Pakistani Muslim who suddenly developed a renal failure in her early 20s. She received a kidney transplant through a non-paid program, and here it is what she has to say. Sadia, who's next um, on the line with us, um, Sadia um, is joining us uh, um, as uh, she suddenly uh, developed a renal failure in her early 20s. Um, she then received a kidney transplant through the non-paired non program. Sadia, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Assalamu Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So, uh, would you like to share with us your your uh, story of uh, um, of what happened and and how you know things uh, changed for you? Yeah, sure. Um, I was in my early twenties and I had no symptoms of uh, renal failure or <coughs> any you know issues with my kidney until I moved from London to Birmingham and um, joined the GP and went for full medical and it was picked up there that I had some kidney issues and I was referred to the Queen Elizabeth in Birmingham. Um, and it was only then after when I had several appointments that um, I realized that I had kidney failure, um, which I had no concept about what it was. I just thought, you know, my, I, you, I'm, no one in my family has kidney failure. I didn't know anyone who had kidney failure. So it was all really new to me, so I was in denial for a long time. You had no and symptoms or, or you... No, you, nothing. Yeah, nothing at all. Um, yeah, so it was quite unusual. Mm -hmm. um, and then over time, my kidneys deteriorated. Um, and then in, I, was, I went on the waiting list um, for a kidney transplant. Um, and I, I think I was waiting for... Um, for me, it felt like a very long time, but... In waiting terms, it was fairly short. Um, I think I waited about a year and a half, and I received a call um, to say that they found me a kidney on the waiting list. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, um, it didn't last very long. Um, for me, again, it was still a long time, but in kidney terms, it was less than four years, and I then started dialysis for about six, seven years, uh, which I would do at home and work full-time. Um, and then my brother was matched up for me, mm -hmm. but unfortunately I developed antibodies uh, while we were through the process, and then he put himself forward for the pairs exchange. Okay. Um, and in 2016 we got the call that uh, we were successful in the pairs exchange, and there were six of us, so there were three recipients. Three do um, what's a, a pairs exchange? Uh, so the pairs exchange is where uh, you go into a scheme and you're... You, you get kind of three rounds um, of quarterly, 
um, and you you may make match with some stranger, my, um, and your my, my brother matched with another stranger. So it was there was no direct link mm. to any of us. So my brother matched with some stranger, I don't know where, and somewhere else I matched with someone else. So there was six of us in total who had the operation that day. Oh wow! Oh, yeah, wow. so it's an amazing program for people like me who have you know haven't got mm. anyone in the family who are matches or mm. who are matches and then develop antibodies um so it, you know with that that i w- i probably still would have been on dialysis very uh i mean moving actually um yeah um with the you know the with 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 the bme community with the bm yeah. community people are of course we've been discussing this like oh less aware uh, yeah. And of course, willing to actually donate organs. Mm. Why do you think that is the case? I think it's the lack of understanding and knowledge, and I think awareness as well. And mm. I think religiously, I think people think it's not allowed mm. when it is. Um, and like I think also, is if you don't know about the condition, you you know you're not aware of it. It doesn't mm. affect you. Like when you know I wasn't aware of what kidney failure meant and mm. donation until. It impacted me and my family and my wider family and relatives became more aware of it and understand it more. Mm-hmm. So I think it's the awareness. True. Um, and, the, you know, I think a religious aspect plays a lot into it. Some people have a lot of misconception and understanding that we're not allowed mm. um, to donate. And I think that also plays a part. Absolutely. And I think stories like yours can really, um, especially within the family circles, yeah. uh, can make a big difference Uh you know, in understanding, uh, you know the the big change. I mean, the yeah. you know it brings in someone's someone's life. Yeah, I mean, my life has totally changed. The things that I've been able to do, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to do, you know, to the full extent that mm-hmm. when I was on dialysis, because I was dialyzing at home mm. every night for nine hours, every single day. Mm. I couldn't attend family functions, I was always ill, I was always in hospital, mm. you know, my, the sacrifice my brother gave for me, you know, the gift that he's given me, I've been able to, I went Umrah, mm, you know, I've been able to spend time with my family, I recently had a baby, so, you know, all these blessings I wouldn't have been able to do without, you know, a donation or my brother's gift. Mm. That is wonderful. That is a pretty amazing story. May Allah bless you all uh, for those sacrifices and obviously um for all of that uh, thank you very much sadia for joining us um at the en- yeah just at the end i mean is there any, anything you would like to say to encourage other people to come forward to or for organ donation as well so yeah, yeah we do have time I, yeah i would say you know religiously we are allowed it's the biggest gift you know you're changing someone's life you're giving them a second chance mm. of living and trying to have some normality um and do your research just don't go by listening to people or you know what you've heard mm. uh, speak to your mom speak to family members you know and speak to your own you know we don't have these conversations within mm. families. you know i think we're scared or it's not the norm but have these conversations about donation because like i said we don't know what tomorrow can bring we could pass at any time but if you've you know signed the register or you've known you wish you know told your family you would like to donate it'll make a massive 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 difference to someone mm. Exactly. Well said. Thank, uh, thank you, so you much. very much, Sadia, for thank your time. You. Thank you. Assalamualaikum. Thank you. Well said by Sadia Kareem that you should do your, do your own research before going into anything. 
and you know once we all die the organs are no use to us it is the best therefore to give your organs to the patients who are desperately waiting for a life-saving phone call that is a call that they have received an organ that could change their fate in principle a donor is upholding the sensitivity of human life in the holy quran it is stated because of that we decree upon the children of israel that whoever kills a soul unless for a soul or for corruption done in the land it is as if he had slain mankind entirely and whosoever saves one it is as if he had saved mankind entirely and our messengers had certainly come to them with clear proofs that indeed many of them even after that throughout the land were transgressors so this is our first hour for today and join us back for the second hour we'll be talking regarding hijab and some other topics today and inshallah we'll see you after this short news break assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh welcome back to the second hour of our drive time show where we'll be talking about hijab and the mosque fatih azim in zion so as we all know many of our listeners are probably aware that the unrest and protest that took place in iran currently response to the killing of a young woman by the iran iran so-called morality police after she was arrested for not covering her hair properly and at, at, at that same time female students were petitioning in india supreme court to be allowed to wear the hijab in school in the state of karnataka in both cases male laws makers and authorities are imposing the view on how a woman should dress there are many misconceptions about the hijab in the west hijab means veiling and both men and women have been instructed to be modest in their character as well as their appearance it is true that a muslim woman across the world will cover their heads and wear loose clothing according to their religious and cultural understanding of hijab but does this mean women in islam are restricted or inferior His Holiness Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih the fifth may Allah be his helper um the who is the khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community stated first it is the men who are commanded to practice restraining their gray the gaze they should restrain their eyes from gawking at anything prohibited and they should not unnecessarily state stare at women what really it is this is has what really is that is a, it's a hijab according to religion's text it is oppressive or a supreme right and um, by myself and zakaria will be telling you regarding what hijab is mm-hmm. according to the context of the holy quran mm. and what um, discriminations against hijab are happening around the world so if you have anything as a career regarding what has um, the holy quran mentioned mm-hmm. regarding hijab um you just mentioned a a quote of his holiness mirza mansur ahmed may allah be his helper uh, where he explained that it's f- it's the commandment for hijab is first mm-hmm. for men 
and then it is for women. And this is this commandment in the Holy Quran is found in chapter 24, where God Almighty says that, say to the believing men that they restrain their eyes and guard their private parts. That is pure for them. Surely Allah is well aware of what they do. This verse in the Holy Quran uh, addresses the root issue of the immorality in the society. The second part of um, you know, this chapter and, and, and the second verse of it, um, in fact, yeah, the second verse, uh, which is verse number 32 of this chapter, uh, mentions the, the, the part of woman. So it's, it's aiming to men first and then woman. So mm-hmm. God Almighty says in this in, in this verse that and say to the believing woman that they restrain their eyes and guard their private parts and that they disclose not their natural and artificial beauty except that which is apparent thereof and that they draw their head coverings over their bosoms and that they disclose not their beauty safe to their husbands or to their fathers to the fa- or, or to the fathers of their husbands or their sons or the sons of their husbands or their brothers or the sons of their brothers or the sons of their sisters or their women or what their right hand possesses or such of male attendants as have no sexual appetite or young children who have no knowledge of the hidden parts of a woman and they strike not their feet so that they uh, what they hide of their ornaments ornaments may become known and turn ye to Allah altogether o believers that you may succeed a natural question you know from these verses and these mm-hmm. teachings of the holy quran can arise that why is it why is the commandment more detailed for a woman and to answer this question, His Holiness, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed, may Allah be pleased with him, explained in his commentary of these verses that the outer garment is intended to make known the fact that while a Muslim woman goes about her business, she may be spared the mental anguish of being stared at by persons of questionable character. Covering oneself when outside amongst men to whom a woman is unrelated to is different to covering inside one's home where there are such mere relatives which whom marriage is permissible to. Therefore, the philosophy of hijab is not the clothing itself. Rather, it is the modesty which, uh, with which men and women have been instructed to live by. So to understand these verses, it's the modesty of both. For men, the modesty is that they restrain their eyes from looking mm-hmm. at uh, women who are not related to them or who they are not capable of marrying. And for women, it is that they also restrain their eyes but also cover their beauty parts or the body parts, which is you know apparent, of course. And this is a, the belief. And, and, and you pretty much find it in all the other scriptures as well. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at 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 the uh, at their beliefs in in the Bible as well in 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 Gita and other books, you find that there is instructions of the veil in mm-hmm. in on in those scriptures. The difference between others and Islam is that we follow what God Almighty has given to us, right? The other ones are not being followed because it's not been preserved the way that God Almighty preserved the Holy Quran, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know we f- we find discrimination against hijab as well, isn't it? Indeed. Um, 
throughout the whole world, especially in the Western countries where um, Islam is not a pro- uh, you know prominent religion, you mm-hmm. can say. Um, what do we know about this, and what have you discussed about this? So in 2021, an European court ruled that hijabs can be banned at work under certain conditions. The burqa, which is a full face covering, is banned in 16 states. And the 2015 report of Tel Mama, 61% of Islamophobia victims were women, and 75 of them were visibly Muslims, meaning that they were wearing headscarves. In a 2013 UK poll, it was found that 61% supported the idea of a burqa ban. ACLU 69% of women were wearing the hijab reported at least one incident of discrimination. In 2011, the women's football team of Iran were banned from a qualifying match for the Olympics because of dress code rules. They wore the hijab as part of their kit. So these are, you know, quite a few things which the women have, uh, have been facing throughout the modern society, the 21st century, where religious freedom, as we have talked about uh, um, in, the, in the first hour, where Queen Victoria gave religious freedom so we can express our uh, religion to everyone, we can preach to everyone. Mm-hmm. In the same um, era in the, in, in the 21st century, where, where the modern society, where we, where we believe freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom uh, that you can express yourself the way you want, there we see this oppression happening against Muslim women, unfortunately. But we have um, a a audio from Anam Islam, who will be talking about uh, the Islam and the digital detox uh, on Voice Muslim, uh, when she came on Voice Islam Radio. So here it is, and I hope our listeners will learn something from this today. We have uh, Anam Islam joining us from uh, uh, Norway, I believe. Um, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to the Dr. Mm-hmm. Show once again. Uh, Jazakallah for joining us. I mean, of course, this this uh, discussion about hijab um, and, and head covering, of course, is very relevant in, as you know, obviously, because of the news and uh, the, the, the protests and uh, um, so much that is circulating on, on social media. I think if we start off with the... Um, you know the experience in in a western country obviously uh, like yourself living here uh, how's people's views um about hijab in schools in in the work environment how do people see it um people who perhaps don't have that deep of a knowledge of the philosophy of hijab or the uh, understanding of the philosophy of modesty in islam um well, my experience here in Norway, at least, has been, I would say, generally positive. But obviously, it's um, you do have a lot of um, negativity as well from people that don't know too much about the topic. Um, for instance, I had um, I've been working in a shop while I was studying, so I remember customers would, and I was the the first employee at that shop that was wearing a headscarf and I remember still remember having loads of comments about how it made me look like a terrorist how it made me look unapproachable and like a lot of uh, mean words like that but as time went by I think people got used to it and then I worked there for 11 years it got better I can't remember getting many bad comments in the recent years 
uh, but in and in yeah and in schools i studied law and law studies is is a um, law is a field where looks matter a lot and uh, i remember that was probably my biggest worry when i started wearing the headscarf uh, because I started uh, right after I started my law studies, and I remember I was very scared about how it would be received in the in the in the at the university. And at that, I remember at that time there weren't many Muslim female students at uh, at the Faculty of Law, and the few that were there, none of them wore the headscarf. And I was going to be the first one in in my class, and I was very worried. I remember being so nervous about it, crying, praying, asking for strength, and I knew that this field would require so much from me, and this field might not accept me. But I remember going to university the first day I wore the headscarf, and not a single person looked at me differently. No one asked me anything. Everyone just went on with their day, went on with their studies, went on with their projects with me without even asking anything or looking at me like I was different that day. And I've generally uh, not experienced a lot in the professional field as well. I've been working on the governmental level um, ever since I, I finished my studies from, from one directorate to another. And it has... Uh, Alhamdulillah, been been um, received well. I'm the first lawyer in the current directorate um, who has a, um, a Muslim background, and on top of that, I'm wearing a headscarf. And but I've I've been received really well in in meetings when I'm out presenting, when I'm meeting politicians. It's been generally positive. But I know my experience isn't um, the same experience for uh, everyone. I know many people who have received a lot of um, uh, who have not gotten the job they wanted because of their headscarf, who have been discriminated by hairdressers, who've been discriminated in shops, who've experienced things like this in Norway. But it, it feels like I hear more about it from my friends in, for instance, France and Denmark than I do from my friends here in Norway. So I know that in the West, it's quite different from country to country. And I know that my sisters in France don't necessarily have it as easy as I have it, or my sisters in Denmark, because the, the view on the headscarf is very much different from country to country. So the West doesn't seem to agree on it either. Uh, but obviously now with the... Um, uh, demonstrations in Iran. I was thinking that it's going to be much more negative here in Norway as well. Obviously, you have all those internet trolls and the comments beneath the news articles saying bad stuff about how Muslim women in Norway should, in solidarity with their sisters in Iran, they should take off their headscarves and burn them. And there have been protests here where the headscarf has been burned. And I was being, uh, I was a bit concerned that it's going to create much more negativity in the general society when when you're walking outside, but so far, so good, um, but it remains to see uh, how it's, it's going to change the narrative um, otherwise. Mr. Islam, if I can ask you, why is it that hijab, the topic of hijab, is so mm. newsworthy in the West? Mm. Why, is it why does it attract so much attention? It's, um, I, I would say it's, it's a phenomena created um, by a few negative voices that has, uh, I would say, I think it, it started off with just one person being super negative about it. And that specific article about it generated so many clicks and so much money and income for the media outlets that they realized that this is the topic to, to later on to, to hold on to because it generates a lot of 
um, traffic on the internet websites. On top of that, I would also say it has a bit to do with um, how we, uh, how people here in the West aren't necessarily familiar with the concept, and uh, the, the only narrative they had been presented was the one they were given in history class. For instance, I remember from my school um, days in, at upper secondary school, and in in from. I remember eighth grade, ninth grade, and in history class, you would talk about countries like um, Saudi Arabia or Iran, where women were forced to wear the hijab and they couldn't uh, choose for themselves. And that uh, storyline, that practice of how you're supposed to, uh, that practice of those extreme countries sort of became the uh, definition of, of the headscarf for many people here in the West. Uh, because uh, someone decided to blow up the stories from from the, those Muslim countries here in the West, and and I think that's and and it became a thing where you saw more and more people uh, being interested in looking at this. Uh, and and also I think it's also because there's a savior complex in the West. The, we feel like we have to save everyone here in the West, that it's our duty to save the entire world. And when we look at the Muslim women, um, for some reason, Western people think that we need to be saved and uh, because we are so bad off and you have all the countries that are treating Muslim women bad and not making it exactly any more positive. So I think it's a combination of the history of these countries and how it has been presented here in both in media and at schools and uh, the way it creates a lot of uh, hype, a lot of debates, a lot of clicks, a lot of um, um, traffic on Internet websites. Um, combined with our own actions, I would also say, I would say here in Norway, for instance, it started off when one Iranian woman many, many years ago, I think this was early 2000s, she decided to burn the headscarf outside a mosque here in Oslo. And I remember after that protest of hers, she received several death threats from seemingly Muslim men and women, and she received a lot of backlash by Muslims in, in uh, I think, in, from Iran as well. There were reactions and, and the, and the, yeah, a lot of protests from that. So I think that behavior of ours as well, um, at least here, sort of created this, um, yeah, hype around it, I think. Yeah, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. And, and that totally makes sense. I think uh, Muslims are uh, to blame. Uh, but this interest in the in, in, in the media, well, Muslims are partly to blame, I'm, I, I'd say. But this interest um, uh, in in the in the Western media, especially around this, well, I mean, mm. uh, what I'm trying to say is, I mean, I don't we have enough mm. problems of, of our own at this time. There, there's a huge energy crisis. There's a mm. cost of living crisis. That I'm, mm. uh, this morning, I I heard on the radio that um, people, some people in this country, don't have uh, enough money to buy their kids' uniforms in schools. So uh, <laughs> you know, this uh, there, there aren't there too many problems for us to to worry about, rather than you know thousands of miles away. There's oh. there's a demonstration happening yeah. somewhere in Iran and and oh. we're talking about uh, about that I was looking at uh, you know the our queen recently passed away um uh, may Allah bless her soul um she uh, I was looking at uh, a, a collage of her photographs and um, in one of them she was wearing um, a headscarf mm -hmm. so uh, you know is it if it was such a bad thing why was uh, the queen wearing it so you know what what is this obsession 
uh, with hijab in the Western mm. media specifically mm. uh, is, mm. is, is the question that I'm asking. I mean, is this, is this something mm. um, uh, that they, um, you know, is it, uh, is it the modern uh, jihad uh, that uh, the modern form of jihad that the Western yeah. media has taken up? I, I would say it's also, yeah, it's it's also that. The thing is, here in the West, you're only free if you wear, don't wear much clothes. I'll be completely honest. If you mm-hmm. if you dress according to exactly. a very sexual standard that has been set by, so you can take off as many clothes industry. as you want, but you cannot yeah. you can wear anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't wear yeah, it, no, exactly. because it doesn't fit the narrative here. Because when you think of freedom in the West, you automatically think about taking off layer after layer after layer. That's that's what freedom is here in the West. It is to be able to, to walk around, have have a beach here in Oslo, for instance. People fought for a beach where you can walk around naked and just be free to do that. And they've been dedicated an entire area for that. And yeah. that for them, that is freedom. They don't sit, look at... And then on the contrary, on the other side, when you see people who want to dress up, they think they are uh, constrained, like they're... Um, restricted or they're they're not free or they, they need some kind of help to be liberated and it doesn't uh, and it's it's part of that that um, understanding of freedom that they think that freedom is unanimous with uh, not having clothes on and also again going back to how we have presented things as well Iranians in the West for instance Iranians for instance have have been immigrating uh, to Western countries for many many years now mm-hmm. and they I don't know how it is in many other countries, but for instance, in Scandinavia, they take up a lot of space in the um, in the Western media, where they're weekly talking about bad Islam is, how much uh, how much they suffered because of Islam in Iran, uh, and they talk about uh, how they've been suffering also in Norway when they say anything negative about Islam, Muslims attack them, blah blah blah. blah. So it's a combination of, of that stories, those stories that are presented almost weekly here. We have a few, like a five, six Iranians that are almost like on a roll every week here with one article after another. Um, and people don't see the difference between Islam and Iran. They don't see that those are two completely different things. Um, that's how the Iranian uh, government is, is practicing their laws isn't related to Islam. It's a very like their own version of it. Um, but it's 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 mostly the the concept of freedom that has developed over the years in the West that you have to be free, you have to look free, and the only way you can look free in their eyes is, is if you don't clothe yourself. Let, let's come to the uh, let's come mm-hmm. to the issue specifically in Iran in a minute. I mm-hmm. think that's an important mm-hmm. issue, and we and that must be addressed. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people would be wondering um, mm-hmm. if you're trying to circumspect that. Absolutely not. So, so uh, mm-hmm. we will come to that. I, mm-hmm. I I want to focus on on the on the hijab itself, on the mm-hmm. um, uh, on the reasons for taking hijab, um, mm-hmm. as well as on the advantages and disadvantages. So, mm-hmm. so firstly. If I can ask you, why do you take? Mm. Why did you decide, uh, Ms. Islam, to take mm. your job? I decided to wear the hijab because I felt like I needed it to to remind myself about becoming better. Uh, I needed it to let society know that I didn't want anything to do with their standards of uh, or their uh, their description of what freedom is uh, or their standards of beauty how everything needs to be connected to my looks. 
Uh, I wanted to show them my pride in being a Muslim woman and how I'm so proud of it that I want to carry some sort of symbol uh, to to prove my pride. Um, it is also, many people think that when, when you start wearing the hijab, it's sort of you telling the world, hey, I'm a perfect Muslim woman, look at me. <laughs> but it's not. I'm, on the contrary, I think it's, it's more of a reminder to me every single day that I'm not perfect and that I need to work on loads of things to become a better Muslim woman. But by wearing this headscarf or wearing the hijab, I, it becomes a bit of an extra thing for me that okay, you're putting this on now. When you walk outside, people look at you and they see you as a Muslim woman automatically. They know that you're a Muslim woman. So how, how are you going to show that in your actions and the way you conduct yourself in society? Uh, you need to be extra mindful about how you talk to people, how you treat people, uh, what you are seen doing and not doing, um, the way you, you if you, whether or not you're kind or, or all of that. So, so I think because you're under all scrutiny all the time. Yeah. So, so it's it's basically yeah. I did I did for me it was a very easy choice. I had been wanting to wear the hijab since I was eight, and I saw my mum wearing it, and I thought it was really really beautiful. And her explanation mm. of why she chose to wear it was really beautiful to listen to. But I started wearing it when I was eight. Um, I was heavily bullied at school because everyone was saying, oh, it's because your hair is ugly that you started covering it up. And yeah, you know how kids can be. And I took it off, unfortunately, after just wearing it for three weeks. But I was only eight and uh, I didn't fully grasp the concept or understand why I did it. But then I worked on myself. For a few years, I prayed and I learned more about it. I understood the the meaning of it. And, and when I finally did decide to wear it, I wore it with much more strength than I could ever, ever ha- had before that time. So what and is it? Was a problem. Yeah? Sorry, um, uh, Mrs. Lam, what does it mean to you? My hijab, for me, it's, uh, I always use this word and I'm going to use it again. For me, it means that it's a crown. It's, it's, for me, it's a part of my identity. It, for me, it means everything. For me to not be able to wear it would be taking away a part of my soul. Uh, every time I hear a debate uh, locally going on about whether or not we should ban the hijab in public places, it, it, I, I start to shiver. I become worried because for me, it's like I'm going to feel like a part of me died. It's, it's that important for me now because I've been wearing it for so, so many years, a huge part of my life. It is my identity. It is who I am. It is. It, it is my crown. It is it's my pride. It's my joy. I find so much comfort in it. I find so much comfort in knowing uh, that I am all doing so much to to become a better version of myself, and I am trying to be a good representative for Muslim women. So it means everything to me. It really does. Mm. Do you think it's also it also allows uh, you to focus um, at the workplace specifically? Uh, mm-hmm. on your work and other people also to specifically look at your work rather than um, uh, look at your looks or or um, yeah, or something else? Absolutely. I, I, I noticed that, especially when applying for, for, for jobs after getting, after graduating law school, uh, that sort of forced people to get to know me, um, to talk to me, to sit down with me and have a two-hour interview to understand me, not judge me by my looks. They have to talk to me and listen to what comes out of my mouth to really know who I am. And that goes for any everywhere else um, where I walk around um, that they need to, because they probably have a lot of thoughts about how I am 
about who who I whether or not I'm a liberated woman, whether or not I actually know what I'm doing, whether or not I should be in the position I am in, especially at work where I I am in charge of 22,000 as I'm a legal coach for 22,000 employees. And when I walk around and present things for for tons of those employees or I hold presentations and meetings, I feel like I I can see on people's faces that they're a bit concerned that, okay, we finally have a GDPR lawyer, but why is she, like, she wears a headscarf. Her last name is Islam. Like, she's probably super extreme. And when they read my name in the program, they probably have a lot of thoughts about me or see my picture with the headscarf on. But then when I come on stage and I start talking, I always see, I really make a point out of looking at people's faces while I talk. And I see it change. I see the the facial expressions change. And for me, that's really fun because that really gives me the chance to to define how I am um, being um, received, how I'm being understood, because I'm really letting my work and my my thoughts and, and everything else related to my personality, I'm letting all those things talk for me. I'm not letting my looks define me at all. Right. D- does it empower you in any way as well, Mrs. Islam? Absolutely, it does. Because it's, it's, I think there is no other religion more beautiful for me than Islam. Um, because it has given women uh, such a high position, so much respect, so much comfort and protection. And we're basically treated like diamonds and queens and everything mm-hmm. good. And, and uh, when I wear that hijab as my crown, it makes me feel empowered because then I'm telling the entire world that, hey, I'm a proud Muslim woman. My God has given me tons of rights. My God has protected me. My God has given me um, everything good. And, and I know that in front of uh, Allah's eyes, I'm, I'm, I mean a lot. And uh, this is my crown um, that indicates how much I, how much I valued I, of a value I am in, in my religion. So it's an empowerment in itself, definitely. Right. Um, let's uh, um, uh, come over to the uh, to the Iranian or, or move to the uh, discu- move our discussion towards the protests in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, well, firstly, what are your thoughts on um, Iranian police or or this moral police or whoever um, mm-hmm. trying to put on hijabs on uh, on women's heads uh, by force? Mm-hmm. It's absolutely insane. I I look at those videos and I see everything that happened to Masa Amini and the the torture that she went through and her unfortunate death and and all the tragedies that are now happening with more and more women being killed during the protests. It's just insane. Um, It makes me think that uh, how has Iran been practicing such a weird uh, I don't know, weird, they have a weird explanation of Islam, like they have a very messed up version of Islam that they're mm. presenting to the world, because there is, in in the, you've already talked about the verse about the hijab and how God Almighty has commanded men to, to look away and all of that, and then it, God has commanded women to, to cover themselves up, but no way in that, nowhere in that verse does it say, Okay, if women decide that they don't want to wear the headscarf, men should um, forcefully put it on them. Nowhere in that verse does it say that. But still, the Iranian police think that God has given them some kind of rights to be that 
that man that mm-hmm. or be those soldiers that are going to force those women to, to wear the headscarf. It goes against everything Islam stands for. It goes against everything Prophet Muhammad, uh, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him, everything against his his life story, that we're supposed to follow his his teachings, the way he practiced uh, he, he, the way he practiced Islam, and he one of the first things that he did was that under his rule, everyone was free. They were free to practice their religion. They were free to be who they wanted to be. Never did the state ever get involved in people's personal faith. Never did the state first forcefully make uh, people convert to Islam. Then, if if Prophet Muhammad never did that, then who are we to force women to wear the headscarf? I don't understand. So it really disturbs me how how that so-called moral police is practicing this rule that they are, for some reason, saying is is Islamic. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And I'm Islam. Thank you so very much for talking to us. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time. Jazakallah for having me. So this was Anam Islam who was talking regarding hijab and why a woman wears it and the freedom she has wearing this um, um, veil or hijab, um, a head covering and who are we to say anything against it and and when she just mentioned regarding and who are we to make a woman also wear the head mm. headscarf? It's her own choice, yep. and she does it out of her own will. Yep. That's the freedom she has chosen to take. Definitely, definitely, it's a, <coughs> it's a freedom, um, and it's an instruction of God Almighty Indeed. that we find in the Holy Quran and in, in the previous scriptures as Indeed. well. So, if someone is, has faith and wants to practice his faith. Mm-hmm. Then you know uh, this 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 freedom of practicing the faith shouldn't be taken away remember in any country or indeed. anywhere. Remember, it says in the Holy Quran, there is no compulsion in religion. There you is no compulsion in religion, of course. Definitely. So, moving on swiftly to our second program, um, the mosque which was inaugurated in Zion called Fateh Azim, meaning the Great Victory. Hmm. So, His Holiness Hazrat Khalifa al Masih. The fifth, may Allah strengthen his hand, inaugurated the mosque Fateh Azim, the great victory, and with his weekly Friday sermon in September. Just a, a quick background regarding this. The great city of Zion was founded in 1900 by John Alexander Dawi, who defamed the Holy Prophet Muhammad wasallam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and called for destruction and elimination of all Muslims. After attempts to persuade Mr. Dawi to depart from the path of religious hatred failed, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, foretold that the Dawi, despite him being almost 12 years younger than himself, and despite being at the peak of his power, would die during the life of the promised Messiah, salam, peace, and peace be upon him, as a sign from God of the victory of Islam. The prophecy was fulfilled to the letter on March 9th, 1907, when John Alexander Dowie passed away. And His Holiness inaugurated the first mosque of Zion, the sign of the truth of the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the glory of Islam, shone forth with a new light at the hand of the fifth successor of the promised Messiah, alayhi salam. During his Friday sermon, Hazrat Khalifa al-Masih 
the fifth Ayyadullah bin Aziz said, Today you have all gathered here for the inauguration of the mosque in Zion. Allah the Almighty has granted the Ahmadiyya Muslim community USA to uh, the opportunity to build this mosque and do so in the city which holds a special significance with regards to the history of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Further on, Hazur states, due to the historical significance of this city and the fact that a false cl uh, claimant to, um, to prophethood, someone who used extremely foul language against the promised Messiah السلام, who then perished away and given the fact that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is not established in the very city are all such aspects which should make every Ahmadi Muslim grateful to Allah the Almighty. There was also a documentary regarding the science, um, regarding the, the yeah. city mm -hmm. where they asked do you know who built the city? Hmm. And the people who were, who were living in Zion did not know that John Alexander Dowie built it. He was a billionaire to say. Yeah, that he, he, he said powerful. that uh, this Zion city and the, the residents of this, uh, we will make sure that we will eliminate every Muslim. Indeed. And they said that no Muslim will be able to enter this city. Indeed. And imagine in the same city same place uh, his holiness has you know integrated a mosque and the defeat of um, alexander dawi during the time of the promised messiah is also a sign of his truthfulness mm. so we spoke about this uh, to um Junaid um, latif, Junaid latif um, and and uh, let's listen to this clip we have um um, a dear friend, our brother, uh, Junaid Latif, joining us. Um, he's an African Ahmadi Muslim living in Zion. Um, and he was born in New York, but he grew up in New Jersey. And then he moved to Zion in 2001. And uh, Junaid is joining us. Uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Brother Junaid, thank you very much for joining. How are you today? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. I'm doing great. Uh, you know, alhamdulillah, these are uh, historic times for us. Uh, in Zion, uh, as you said, we're having a mosque uh, built. So uh, everyone uh, in the Zion Jamaat is very excited and very engaged and working hard to host uh, the guests of the Promised Messiah yeah. um, at our mosque here. Yeah. MashaAllah, Alhamdulillah. I mean, I, I, we, we're just excited, obviously, listening and following the action, you know, from here. And, um, you know, His Holiness uh, being there, you know, it just uh, adds to the excitement as well. Uh, but if I was to start with just uh, you know, discussing your move to Zion. Um, you grew up in New Jersey. Uh, what made you move to Zion? Um, is is uh, that was in two thousand one, I believe, right? Yes, yes, yes. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, it was it was very interesting. Um, in two thousand, actually, uh, our community held a program called uh, uh, Messiah two thousand. Mm -hmm. uh, where it was again highlighting um, the prophecy of the promised Messiah and um, how it, it was so magnificently um, shown true in Zion. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I had visited Zion in 2000 um, of that uh, uh, to uh, be part of this program, and that was my first time to Illinois, my first time to Zion, and I was just, uh, you know, we've heard the story kind of on the peripherals, and uh, so now it was just an opportunity to kind of see it up close and personal, see the sites, you know, hear uh, a lot more de the story in a lot more detail. Um, so, uh, uh, fast forward a few months, 
from then. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother uh, introduced me to my uh, current, my now wife, mm-hmm. uh, through a mutual friend, and I began a correspondence in early 2001 uh, with my current wife. And um, by late 2001, uh, we had uh, uh, decided uh, to move forward with our with our marriage. And um, at the time, um, I was looking for work in New Jersey, and I said, well, uh, things don't seem to be panning out here, so I'm going to move to Illinois and, um, you know, see, you know, what prospects lie out there. Mm-hmm. And by the grace of God, you know, I was able to find a nice job, and, um, you know, uh, uh, within a month or so, you know, ask, you know, uh, my father-in-law for his blessing, and, um, you know, and my wife and I, uh, we eventually married in December of 2001. So, um, uh, you know, and that just started a, uh, an experience that, um, you know, it's just been one that's of been growth and excitement and, you know, just uh, uh, just my own personal experience in, in, in recognizing the truth mm-hmm. of the promised Messiah and how magnificently uh, his truth was established and how it's still being established today through the Jamaat that exists there. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so that's, uh, you know, Wonderful. that's all I got from East Coast to Midwest. Yes, sir. Amela. So, um, you know, you being someone from, you know, you, you know, third generation American heritage, you know, Ahmadis, um, you know, your father, Hadi Jalaluddin Abdul Latif Sahib, um, you know, what would you tell us uh, with regards to the history of your family is coming to Ahmadiyyat and accepting it? Where did it all start? How did you, uh, how how did Ahmadiyyat come into your fam- family? Yeah, so, um, you know, for uh, me particularly, uh, my father converted in uh, the early 70s. Um, okay. You know, he grew up as a Methodist mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, he joined the military and traveled the world. Uh, in, the, in you know in the 60s, early 70s, there was a lot of uh, uh, exploration of you know different religions and ideas and concepts. It was you know a time of uh, kind of revolution, and you know my father wasn't satisfied with a lot of the ideas and concepts and ideas on spirituality that he received as a young man. So he was searching, mm-hmm. and um, he had begun to look into transcendentalism and uh, Sufi. Uh, philosophy, mm-hmm. and um, a friend of his gave him a book called The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam, mm-hmm. of course, by uh, Thomas Messiah, Islam, and uh, that book, he says, just uh, changed his life. It gave him uh, a perspective on the purpose of life and the, and the evolution of the human uh, soul, and um, uh, and it really impacted him, and it, it, it changed his direction in life. And um, uh, my mother... Uh, who they'd been married uh, several years at that point, uh, she saw this change that took place in him, and she saw him becoming the man that she always hoped that he would be. And um, But she saw him doing it you know, through another faith. So she was born as a uh, uh, Pentecostal Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she um, had noticed this change in him, and she, uh, uh, you know, saw them going in different directions and so she wanted to explore the religion as well mm-hmm. and not long afterwards she converted as well to Islam mm-hmm. and uh, they decided to raise their children um, as Muslims so myself and my three siblings uh, were all raised as Ahmadi Muslims uh, here in America mm-hmm. and uh, you know on the other side of my family my wife she is uh, you know her grandfather had converted to Ahmadiyya back in the uh, 50s um, and, uh, 
you know, so her father uh, was Amadi, and um, so the third generation Amadi as he comes through our children mm-hmm. um, in our family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, one uh, one thing, uh, Brother Janaid, that's that's very uh, astonishing, um, especially in the U.S., is the acceptance of Ahmadiyat uh, from an you know from an African background. And you know we find uh, you know s- uh, since since the coming of Hazrat Mufti Muhammad Sadiq Sahib, you know there's there's great history for you know people should go and read uh, the amount of work that that Mufti Sahib did. What could you tell us a bit more about that? You know, especially from the African diaspora, people you know coming and accepting Ahmadiyat. How much of effort uh, you know did Mufti Sahib put into place? And of course, missionaries that came after afterwards. What was it that 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 actually attracted them? You know, towards Islam Ahmadiyat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk to the early pioneers, the ones who were, you know, around, you know, even before my father, mm-hmm. um, you know, they uh, were joining Ahmadiyya at a time of Jim Crow mm. and uh, racial segregation. And uh, what they saw in Islam was uh, a, a leveling of humanity. You know, they saw themselves seen as equal and um, they liked the concept of, you know, everyone is equal and judged based on their deeds and, you know, not on the, the, the color of their skin or the nationality or where they came from or their social status and things like that. So that was a very attractive um, um, concept back in those times. And uh, so, uh, you know, so I, uh, early um, African-Americans really were drawn to that uh, concept and, um, began to see themselves outside of the construct that America had established for people of African descent. And, um, uh, you know, so that uh, triggered uh, other movements uh, within uh, America uh, that uh, tried to help to uplift, um, the con- you know, the, the, the way African uh, diaspora people saw themselves. And so, um, you know, when we look back at history, we see that, you know, Ahmadid, the teachings of Ahmadid, you know, started, you know, the famous uh, black empowerment movements uh, like uh, Nation of Islam, meaning the philosophy started it, you know, because it was a, it was, it was, it, a lot of it was an offshoot of uh, what uh, uh, leaders in those communities had taken from uh, Ahmadiyya and, and, and turned into their own uh, social, you know, upliftment movements. And, um, you know, so, you know, we can, you, there's probably ways where we can tie back Mm. Uh, the civil rights movement, the, the the racial awareness movement that happened in America, uh, to the concepts that Islam uh, pr- provided for Americans, and uh, the largest missionary group and most active missionary group mm. uh, in America at that time, uh, Muslim missionary group was uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Mm. Um, so it was a very rich and interesting history. Yeah. Um, and you know, so my father, when he joined, um, it was just through friends. Uh, you know, uh, predominantly African-American friends who, um, you know, had had this realization of, you know, what their potential was spiritually mm-hmm. uh, and how their potential was uh, the same as anyone else's. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of how much effort you wanted to put into your uh, your faith mm-hmm. um, perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that drew him to it and, uh, you know, created a little community that he was able to draw inspiration from mm-hmm. and uh, eventually... Um, you know, join Ahmadiyat uh, after Absolutely. declaring that he would never follow anyone and never, you know, yeah. be part of any group. Absolutely. Uh, but once he saw the message that the Promised Messiah had delivered and the community that he created, uh, he couldn't help but become part of it. Absolutely. Um, one, one, one thing I do want to ask you, you know, very briefly, of course, you've, 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 uh, you know, eloquently mentioned the efforts of our elders, the pioneers. 
how they were the means of you know uh, keeping this Islam and passing it on to their children. What do you think is our you know our responsibility is in this time, and how is the young generation you know in this day and age, particularly you know the day and age of social media and all of these distractions around them? How are they you know the seeing Ahmadiyat and how do they you know go about it? Yeah, it's uh, you know you know we're all still in flux. You know what I mean? Uh, social media is really a new concept right now. And I think people are still really trying to navigate their ways through it. And, you know, by the grace of Allah, you know, we have uh, young missionaries and um, uh, young people, uh, you know, uh, through our uh, Muslim Youth Association that know how to engage with um, our, uh, the young members, the, the youth, uh, in ways that they understand and that they're drawn to. So, um, uh, you know, I think that that's key to keeping uh, Ahmadiyya relevant and engaging with the kids in ways, or the young people in ways that they can relate to and uh, be inspired by. Uh, and uh, we're seeing more and more of that, you know, just through how uh, different children programs are uh, created, uh, you know, on MTA and then shared, uh, how MKA, not just Kadamul Ahmadiyya, in whichever country you um, look at, in the way that they engage with, um, with their members, uh, you see that social media is, uh, you know, a, a big part of that engagement. And, um, you know, it really helps us to keep um, our young people uh, 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 in line with what it is that we're trying to uh, instill in them and in line with what the Khalifa has hmm. uh, instructed for his community uh, to be. Absolutely. Uh, so it's, uh, it, it's, it's extremely important. And, you know, and one thing what I notice is with our community is, uh, the uh, the involvement of young people, and it seems as you go to churches and other religious groups, the majority of those groups are you know elderly people and folks who are uh, you, know, you know up in age and uh, uh, not the you know it's not the, the the audience that will indicate that your community has any future. And, um, you know, when I look at Ahmadiyya and I see the involvement of the young people in the different ways that they're engaged, um, you know, you can tell that this community has a future. Mm. And, uh, uh, inshallah, you know, uh, this can be a, a guide, a guideline for the rest of society to mm. follow and how to uh, raise and nurture our young people. Absolutely. Um, Janae, uh, obviously the whole story of, um, of, of Zion as well as um, obviously the historical um, aspect of the prophecy. Um, of course, because of our many uh, non-Ahmadi, non-Muslim, in fact, listeners who listen to Voice of Islam, uh, very briefly, um, could you kind of explain, um, you know, who this John Alexander Dawi was um, and, and, and what kind of, um, you know, uh, w- what happened in terms of um, uh, the response uh, from from him against Islam and the promised Messiah and then uh, leading up to, you know, how, how, how now things things are in terms of, um, you know, the success of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community uh, in, in Zion? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, that way he was, uh, uh, evang- he was an evangelist, uh, an American evangelist, um, who migrated um, uh, to the to Zion uh, eventually? At the time, it, it wasn't Zion. It, it, it was a parcel of land in Illinois um, that was owned by uh, the neighboring Methodist church, um, and uh, he purchased this land uh, with the idea of building a Christian utopia that was directly between the two largest cities, which were Milwaukee and Chicago, and it was intended to be the next 
um, largest city on the you know, right, you know, conveniently located right on the beach of, uh, of Lake Michigan. And his idea was that um, he would build this uh, this town on uh, Christian um, uh, uh, philosophy and uh, Christian ideals. So his the the way his uh, church was built, you know, the church was the center point of the town, and um, uh, and all the streets uh, emanated from that center point, and all the streets are named in biblical names, and uh, uh, all of the uh, concepts and the, the rules and the laws that were dictated in the town were based off of uh, biblical understanding. Um, and eventually, uh, John Alexander Dowie, he was a great speaker. Uh, he built a huge following, and as that following grew, he began to see himself as the Elijah, uh, as the one who would herald the coming of the, the Christ, the second coming of Christ, and um, also saw himself as the one who would uh, stamp out Islam in the world. Uh, he saw Islam as a threat to Christianity and to his worldview, and he saw himself as uh, uh, creating a mission that would uh, that would that would uh, span the globe, that would eventually um, end uh, Islam in the world. And he would make statements um, uh, in his articles, which were published all over the world, about how he had this desire to destroy um, Islam. And uh, eventually those articles made their way to um, Kadian, India, where uh, the founder of our community was, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. And um, after hearing and reading these articles, uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed responded to, to Dawie saying, there's no need to destroy the entire Muslim world. Um, if you're, you know, all you have to do is, you know, focus your efforts towards me. And if you're true, then God will show that truth by killing or, or destroying one of us in the lifetime of the other. Mm-hmm. And um, when, he, when the promised Messiah made this claim, he would, had put himself at a disadvantage because he was 10 years older than John Alexander Dowie um, and in a town uh, in India that was a, um, not an advanced um, town and uh, compared to Dowie and the riches that he had and the mm-hmm. medicine and the, uh, the opportunities that he had access to, uh, it was. It seemed to be an obviously imbalanced um, challenge uh, in favor, definitely in favor of the younger John Alexander Dowie. So um, Dowie never uh, uh, directly accepted this claim, but uh, just in uh, in the Promised Messiah, uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed said that it, the claim didn't necessarily need to be accepted. He just needed to continue on his mission of uh, trying to. Uh, denigrate the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi and uh, and trying to destroy destroy the religion of Islam. And if he mm-hmm. continued on that path, that was an indication that his, uh, yes. uh, that he had continued with this, uh, that mm-hmm. he had accepted this challenge, mm-hmm. uh, and that he was willing to take on God's judgment. Mm-hmm. And um, what eventually happened was, uh, uh, as the Promised Messiah had predicted, uh, God made His judgment and. Uh, Dowie uh, uh, suffered uh, 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 trial after trial. His um, uh, it was uncovered that uh, many of the vices that he had spoke against, he was actually engaged in. Uh, he found out he was uh, uh, squandering the money of the city, uh, and eventually he began to have strokes, um, uh, upon which you know he was uh, paralyzed and 
eventually died in a uh, uh, you know in a in a in a very painful and um and in, in, in much agony. Uh, so it was shown. Uh, so this story had been captured by media from all over the world. Uh, when Promised Messiah made the claim, he pronounced this throughout the world. So everyone was had been watching this uh, to see what would transpire. And um, on the death of Dowie, uh, newspapers from around the world uh, declared that uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed was great in this uh, uh, in this endeavor, and that he um, was uh, pro proven victorious. Um, and uh, therefore, a great sign was uh, made to the West to show that the promised Messiah had truly come uh, and that his claims were actually true. Um, so uh, in recognition uh, in recognition of that, uh, the, 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 the Jamaat, the community in uh, the, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, USA, has uh, repeatedly tried to make sure that this message was given to the Western world, and that they would, that this message, this revelation, is not um, taken lightly, and it's understood mm -hmm. to show that uh, mm -hmm. a promise, uh, the, the second coming of Jesus, has happened, mm -hmm. and uh, the revolution that is intended to come with it is at hand, and that it, revolution is happening within. Uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Exactly. And, the uh, efforts of and, and this obviously mosque now being inaugurated in uh, Zion, of course, is going to be another uh, way to you know spread that message, as you have said. Uh, Brother Junaid, thank you so much. Allah bless you for uh, giving us your time. And obviously, you are so lucky you're witnessing this Amen. truly historic moment, you know, with your own eyes. So we can only uh, envy you, but also, uh, again, <laughs> Um, you know, uh, Allah bless you for your time, brother. Thank you very much for your time. Jazakallah. This was Junaid Latif. Indeed, we can envy him. And also, he is very fortunate to be there at that time when this great revelation was being built and being present when His Holiness has inaugurated the mosque in Zion, Fateh Azim, the great victory. And, you know, we're coming to the end of the show and we're also coming to the end of the year. It was great meeting you all, listening to my all the listeners. It was great um, being a host on Voice of Islam. And we'll be back, inshallah, with more um, topics to discuss in 2023 and more topics for, you, um, for the listeners to learn from and also for us to learn and benefit from. So you can always call us on. 0208-6877-878 and you can also tweet us on at Voice of Islam UK and oh, thank you to the producers and our technical team who have been supporting us throughout this year and thank you and Zakla to my co-presenter Zakaria Shir Zakla and thank you for <laughs> for presenting and being able to you know speak and discuss about these wonderful topics and hopefully the next year will be a wonderful year for inshallah. you and uh, thank you very much for listening to the show inshallah we'll be back next um, year and then of course we will be reviewing the other months as well tomorrow and the other days thank assalamu alaikum